Blog Talk Radio. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Good evening, good evening, and welcome to a special edition of Saturday Mornings with Joy Tees. I'm your host, Joy Keys, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also check us out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram. Lots of cool pictures there, Saturdays with Joy Keys. And I would love to hear from you. You can email me at SaturdaysWithJoyKeys at Hotmail.com. Suggestions, comments, people you like to see, send them to me. I'm open to that. Also, Really cool news, just got on iHeartRadio, so now we're on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music. So whenever you're in any of those platforms, you can switch over and listen to a great podcast, subscribe, leave some comments, rate the the shows on those different platforms would be really appreciated. We would appreciate that. So um, again, thank you for your support. Well, this evening, I have a guest who's, like, not on the other side of the pond, but, like, on the other side of the planet. Like, I don't know how we say this thing. She's in Australia. Um, This is the author, Roger Augustine. Good evening. Hello. Hi, Joy. How are you? I'm doing great as, you know, best as we can with the COVID, right? Yes, yes, as best as we can, Absolutely. Let me just tell the audience that, you know, you're a native New Yorker, actually. You grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, Mm -hmm. and you did have a a previous novel called The Unraveling of B.B. Jones, and it won the 2013 National Indie Excellence Award in African-American fiction. And you were actually on the show to discuss that book before. I, uh, I posted some links for people. If you're interested, you can listen to the interview I did with uh, Roger uh, and hear about the other book. But now, this evening, we're speaking about Madam C.J. Walker and her daughter, Alayla Walker. Um, And the the book title is Out of No Way, Madam C.J. Walker and Alayla Walker, a Poetic Drama. That's right. So, wow. She's such an immense historical figure. She is, yes. Incredible. She's an icon for me. I've been in awe of her and her story ever since I first discovered her, which was in my early 20s, actually. I don't don't remember how I came across her story, but when I did, my jaw literally dropped because at the time, I mean, you know, this would have been, what, 20 years ago or so. Mm -hmm. At the time, um, the idea that a woman like that could have existed back when she did during Jim Crow, born, you know, not long after the Civil War, I just thought, how did I not learn about this in in school? You know, it's amazing. Story, yeah, her story would have been incredibly empowering as a as you know a little black girl growing up in New York in a very racially charged 
environment. And, you know, America can be quite racially charged, as we know. Um, mm. And I just remember feeling a little bit angry that her story was left out, you know. So once I discovered her, I just became obsessed with her for, you know, to this day. I, I just love her and her story and what she represents. Now, were you concerned about the fact that other people have been making, you know, productions about her um, and that, you know, how was your book going to be different? How were you going to be critiqued? What were your, were you having any concerns about that? Um, I did a bit when I first, like I said, when I first discovered her, I was in my 20s. And sometime, uh, I think I was around 28 or 27 or something, I thought this, this, this would make a great film. And I actually embarked on like writing a screenplay about her life. I didn't know mm-hmm. much about writing screenplays then. I've since learned quite a lot and, and gotten training and gone to, you know, school and everything. But at the time, I was so, um, I was just so in awe of her and so obsessed with her story that I wanted to, to just write it down as a screenplay. That was a very long time ago, and people just weren't ready for that, you know. And of course, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that my screenplay was all that, you know, all that great at the time. But I think, you know, a, a story about a black woman um, who was the daughter, first free born in her family, in a climate that was still very white male dominated, it just didn't land anywhere. No one even wanted to hear it. So fast forward, Netflix comes around and I think, oh, wow, this is, this is perfect. You know, we can bring the story back. And I actually started to develop a series idea with another producer here in, in uh, Sydney who loved the story, had never heard of her and thought, oh my God, this is great. And I started and I embarked again on this whole journey of fleshing out her story and then I found out that, um, and I was a bit worried that, you know, I thought I, we, we need to do this now because somebody's going to get this idea and it's going to fly because the climate yeah. is so right. And of course, that's what happened because in the middle of our development, we found out that um, that Octavia Spencer had, um, had uh, what do you call it, optioned um, Alelia Bundles, uh, Madam C.J. Walker's great-great-granddaughter had um, optioned all, all of her materials for the series. And I was a bit gutted about it. Um, Cause I thought, Oh, I'd waited too long. You know, I should have done this ages ago. Yeah. Yeah. But there was a part of me that was also really happy about it because I thought finally her story is getting out and people are going to learn about her. So it didn't really, at the end of the day, it didn't matter too much to me that I wasn't the one doing it. Although I would have loved to have been a part of it. I was just really glad that it was happening, you know? So, American, uh, American. Well, I mean, all over the globe, actually, I should say, women in their hair. It, it is a story, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and it has connected to our self-esteem. It's mm-hmm. connected to the type of work we could get. It, it becomes a political statement. Um, and for African American women uh, being able to take care of their hair, mm-hmm. there's not in the past weren't a lot of places you could go specifically during her time. There weren't, yeah. um, but even, even um, in, up until maybe mm, 10, 15 years ago, I would say mm. there were like, I know a girlfriend who lived in Philadelphia, but she would travel back to New York because she loved this one salon that yeah. did her hair the right way. You know, yeah. um, if you have a hairdresser, you get stuck to them. Like a, a guy gets stuck to a barber. Um, right. So her, I was in that boat too. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So now you went to Sydney, Australia. What did you do? Your hair is very short, but mm-hmm. I mean, where did you go to get your hair done? Well, that is a great question. <laughs> for, it's true because I think for a lot of black women, even where they live and where they move becomes an issue because you have to think about, well, where am I going to get my hair done? You know, um, mm-hmm. Australia, when I moved here about 10 years ago, and I've been coming here for um, nearly 20 years because my husband's Australian. Um, uh, there weren't many black people here. I'm, I remember the first time I came here in 1996, I saw one black person on the street, and, and he was an indigenous person, an aboriginal person. As the years went by, that, you know, the numbers, the immigration grew. And now there's loads of black people. They're mostly African there are a lot of um, Indians, you know, it's, it's incredibly mm. diverse now, but the largest immigrant group here are Chinese. So it's still not easy for me to find a place to do my hair. So I just went natural because I used to straighten it. And sadly, I've relaxed it for many years because, as you've mentioned, you know, good luck getting a job back in the 90s, you know, with your hair natural. You know yeah. what I mean? Yep. So um, I stopped. Uh, relaxing my hair probably eight years ago, six years ago, between six and eight years ago. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And before that, I was going to this lovely guy um, who lives in an area called Surrey Hills here, um, a gay white guy who traveled internationally and done fashion shows and stuff. And, and he was, he was really good um, to cut my hair and kind of, he did, he never straightened it. I ended up straightening straightening it myself, but he would cut it and keep the shape. And then finally, I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm not even going to, I stopped relaxing it and I just straightened it with a flat iron okay. and then I doing that. So now I, I wear it natural and I'm loving it. You know, I wish I had done this years ago, but as you said, black women and hair, hair, I found that in writing this project, all the features that we possess, the only one that we can control and change is our hair. You know, you can't necessarily, at least quickly and, and relatively cheaply, you can't necessarily change your skin color or your features. You know what I mean? No, no. Hair but the skin is an issue. Skin mm-hmm. is an issue as well. And you talk about that in some of the poems in the book and mm-hmm. um, the importance of the skin and, and how you carry yourself and the clothes. Ooh. And these are like external things, but um, you know, as African Americans, we've had a lot of internal hate mm. about our skin color and also about our hair. Um, yeah. It's just now, I would say, being black is in vogue now. You yeah. can wear your hair natural. You can have right. all kinds of knots and twists and and this, that, and other. You could shave your hair, and mm-hmm. nobody's going to say anything. Um, you know, there's all kinds of products that are now on the market by African Americans because in the past. It was a lot of Asians that were controlling, you know, even women's weaves, yep. their hair products, all owned by, you know, different um, Asian ethnicities. And yeah. actually black people didn't own them. So mm-hmm. um, she was really a, a before her time. Uh, let's talk about the issue that you chose just between her and the daughter. Um, and why did you do that? Because she had a lot of other people. But, I mean, there's a couple other people that are mentioned in in the book, the granddaughter and things like that. But mainly it's the relationship between mother and daughter. Yeah, yeah. Well, Why did you think that was so important? Because mother-daughter relationships, particularly in the black community, it's not really – it's not really explored, um, I feel, in a lot of 
popular culture or in artistic works um, as much as I would like it to be. I mean, of course, there are there are plenty of um, examples. I, I, I honestly can't think of one that comes to mind now, but I just felt like it was a really rich area to, to mine. And in reading Alelia Bundles, the great-great-granddaughter, reading her books about Madam C.J. Walker and um, various others, mostly it was her books, they were fantastic books, but I always felt like I wanted more. Like I, I was always looking for more intimacy. I wanted to really get a sense of what was their relationship like? You know, what you don't, there are, aren't even any letters between Madam Walker and, and her daughter. And wow. You know, cause you have in the book, you know, them talking to each other when she travels Ooh. and, you know, a lot of things that are unsaid and, you know, that's an interesting thing. Like I'm, I have a daughter and, mm-hmm. you know, I think, did I say everything I need to say to her if something happened to me? Yeah. You know what I mean? Did yeah. I tell her that I love her enough? Did I give her the right directions? Did I, you know, mm-hmm. tell her, you know, watch for this, watch for that? Um, because you think about those as a parent, and it's funny, memories are also different. Yeah. She remembers different things growing up, about growing up. And I'm like, really? That's mm-hmm. No, but it happened this way. So mothers and daughters have a different view and memory. That's How about right. you and your, 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 do you have a daughter? Yes. I have two daughters. Yeah, two. Uh, yeah. So yeah. how do you how do you deal with them and their memories of growing up? Do they have different things that you're not aware of? And you said, "What? I don't remember that happening." <laughs> oh, definitely. Some of them shocking too. And I think, "Oh my God, I had no idea." Or, "Oh my God, I'm so sorry I did that. I had no idea that I, you know, maybe hurt their feelings or made them angry or made them feel insecure." You know, and as they get older, they open up to me more. But yeah, definitely there. Are, and I, and having had conversations with my daughters, why I learned, you know, that what I felt my perspective was when I said something, you know, several years ago. When I hear what how it came across to them, I now really keep it in mind that my job with my daughters is to build great memories. I want them. I want to make sure that they remember my mothering, you know, their mm-hmm. relationship in as positive and warm and loving a light as possible. So there are days where my 17-year-old will come, you know, and just destroy the kitchen and make this food and leave stuff around and this and that. Normally she's great. You know, she helps her around the house, but some days she's a teenager. And and my instinct is to be like, oh, girl, don't <laughs> back to yourself. But then I think, you know what? She's in a rush, whatever. She's doing so well at school. I'm just going to take care of it because I'm thinking 20 years from now when she thinks about her mother, she will think, you know, I used to leave a mess around sometimes and my mom was really kind enough to clean up after me because I was rushing to school or, you know, that's the kind Mm -hmm. of keep in mind because I know memories, as you say, are, you know, they'll, they'll form their own memories. And when I'm not here, I want them to be great, <laughs> you know? Right, so. right. We don't want them to be, you know, we, we want to be uh, on a pedestal, if you will. Uh, one, of your, <laughs> one of your poems actually talks about, you know, well, in, in, in terms of the grave and, and thrones and things like that. But, you know, 
at certain moments we're on the throne and even we put our own mothers on the throne. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other times we're like, Oh my God, you know, it's, it's not a perfect relationship, you know? Right. Um, and I think because of hormones, we both have all these hormones going on. Yeah. It's different than a, a son and a mother, you know, a son right. and a mother is, is, is different. Um, yeah. One of the things you bring up is her, um, the period that she lived in and the fact of lynching was still going on. And you bring up one of the most horrific ones that I'm aware of about a a woman named Mary Turner. Um, You want to tell the audience just a little bit about Mary Turner and what happened to her? Yes. So Mary Turner, um, she was a woman who was married to a man named Hazel Turner. Hazel Turner had had an altercation with this plantation owner, and he was jailed for defending his wife, Mary, after... um, after this plantation owner, um, Smith was his name, something Smith now, I forget. Um, it's here in my notes, actually, my the poem is here. Actually, that was written as a speech. But um, basically, um, Mary Turner was outraged by the injustice of her husband being locked up just for defending her. And mm. so she went around and said, I'm going to get the names of these people who, um, uh, uh, Sorry, her husband was lynched because he'd had an altercation before. And then something happened with this man, Sidney Johnson, who um, who a mob went after because he ended up shooting this plantation owner dead after being brutalized by the guy. And he was basically self-defense. So with this lynch mob, you know, in the roundup, they just went after everybody. As you know, lynch mobs just do this indiscriminate kind of, we're just going to lynch, you know, whatever black person we see. Yeah, whoever we come across. <laughs> exactly. So poor Hazel Turner, his path crossed with this lynch mob. And because he'd already had a, a, an altercation, an issue with the, the plantation owner, they lynched him. And Mary Turner, who had two children and was pregnant with her third child, eight months pregnant, was so outraged that she spoke out against it. And in order to teach her and others a lesson, the lynch mob, they captured her, took her to a bridge um, in a, somewhere in, in, in some county in Georgia. They hung her upside down, burnt the clothes off of her body. Then they slit her belly open with one of these hog um, knives, you know, the kind of knives mm-hmm. that keep hogs open. They let her they took her baby out it fell to the ground and one of the mop members stomped this poor baby to death right there mm. and and um and then they riddled her body with bullets and buried them just there you know in the dirt where they were murdered and put like a, a whiskey bottle with a cigar in it to mark <gasps> them, you yeah. know and no one was brought to justice um and this is one of the most horrific cases that i've read um, it, it, from this period uh, of, of a violent act committed against innocent black folks. And it was just, it was around the time that Madam C.J. Walker was doing her, a lot of, you know, political activism. And, you know, she, she became a philanthropist, as you know, with the NAACP. And she spoke out a lot of, of, uh, against lynching. Um, her and Ida B. Wells, Ida B. Wells was another, you know, big voice at that period. So mm-hmm. I story and for the resilience chapter I included it in this kind of speech that she's meant to have give, given at an anti-lynching conference and she will have done stuff like that she she did go to a lot of anti-lynching um, uh, conferences and, and, and 
you know, she was very um, committed to helping the black community overcome these issues that were facing them. So this speech that I wrote is, is a work of fiction, obviously, but I wanted to tell this story and I wanted to tell it through her voice. And I also wanted it to be a kind of reminder of the resilience that black people in African-Americans clearly have, you know, to have gone through through it. I wanted to bring it up because of that, because Mm -hmm. this is what she was living around and succeeding around Yes. And, you know, uh, uh, stepping up to and confronting while these types of things were going on and somehow she was able to survive mm-hmm. and thrive, you know, um, unfortunately, she she didn't really live, you know, wow. as long as we live now, you know, mm-hmm. but, 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 you know, she had some health problems. But mm-hmm. um, why don't you read some of the book that you um, yeah. want sure. to read a little section there? Sure. I will read Elegy from My Mother. Um, because I think it does encapsulate a lot of the book in this one poem. It's mother-daughter, it's, it's about loss. Um, and the story behind it is that when Madam C.J. Walker fell ill, she, um, she sent word out to her daughter, Alelia, who was at the time traveling um, overseas by ship, and when she received word that her mother was ill and to hurry back. She tried really hard, but at the time, um, uh, from what I read, the ship that she was on was often at the mercy of a lot of cargo schedules. So you may buy a ticket to leave, you know, on Friday, but if they have to get all this cargo that isn't coming for a week, that ship will be delayed for the week. And hers was delayed for two weeks. So she sent out word, look, I'm going to be two weeks late. Um, As soon as I get on land, please have a train ready or, you know, however, that Mm -hmm. she can quickly. And she didn't make it back in time, which I imagine would have been incredibly devastating. So this poem is written from that perspective. It's called Elegy from My Mother, 24th of May, 1919. Mother, from the ship, I dream of you mid-ocean. You appear in the bosom of spring. The buds around you are warm. The land awakens from winter sleep. Your ghost springs forth just like this. Bare hands, bare feet, eternal life that is light and warm forever. Near to your heart, a phoenix soars across the blue skies. A journey beckons like a beguiling snake. You worship its fruit. The life of a seller is given to her buyer at love's expense. For you, it will be the first night unlike yourself, a night of reapers and truth. The hidden parts of your soul give in. The scope of your heart is full. Laughter surrenders in you. The stillness of your thoughts succeeds, and you stay your enemies. Tomorrow, you will walk through the garden. You will be poised under familiar coldness. To lose your grief out in the cities and be praised over and over again. The shadows of your grieving heart are drawn from the blood of your veins. In the small silences of today, where the mourners weep, angels in the temple of heaven know that I, who have been left behind, carry the mighty weight of repentance above all. Water, give up your tortured waif. Madam C.J. Walker has died 
while I on this vessel cry, taking refuge in the cradle of her legacy. The dream of light, the angels of heaven, the eternal seas, all revealed in love. Tomorrow, we will walk through the garden. We will be poised under familiar coldness to lose our grief out in the cities and be praised over and over again. The life of a brave woman is rooted in the soil of her death. And that was it. And I, I, I wanted to sort of make it a kind of poem that was a bit dreamy. And it's something that she sort of receives the night that, or the night before her mother dies. You know how sometimes people report that when a loved one, someone close to them. Um, they had that vision. That, mm-hmm. They get this vision or this sense, you know, and it's sort of dreamy. It's, it's ethereal. And I wanted to capture that, that she's out at sea and that she maybe sensed that her mother was close to the end. And, and this was sort of like a dream missive that she had for Madame. For, yeah. For yeah, definitely. I mean, women, you know, we have this intuitive ability. So some, some say, and um, people, uh, many throughout the histories have said, you know, I, I felt something. Mm-hmm. I, I was sick um, the last night, and then I got a call that, you know, so-and-so passed. Um, I, you know, it's like things come out of the blue. I had no idea why all of a sudden I'm feeling this way. And, and then you get that call. Um, one of the things is that she traveled all around the country uh, yeah. selling. And I wanted to let you know, I found out this was a while back. I found out one of my, my great, great grandmother on my mother's maternal side was a salesperson for Madam CJ Walker. So it was mine. And no way. Are you serious? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, and yes. She was- she was Haitian, so I know that Madam C.J. Walker traveled to Haiti to, to train women there, and my grandmother's mother trained with her, or trained with her agent. Um, wow. My, she, my great-great-grandmother great, great was in North Carolina, mm. um, and so this, this thing of traveling, she touched so many lives. Look at this. You and I, I don't know you, I mean, <laughs> I knew you from the interview before, but mm-hmm. like two different lives, families, existences, but we're connected by this woman who's no longer here, but Mm -hmm. that's the kind of impact she made, you know? Yeah, that's right. And it was that travel, actually, that was the big clincher for me in terms of of approaching this from a mother-daughter angle, because, again, like I said, when, you know, when I was reading through Alelia Bundle's books, um, while it was great material, but it was all very factual it was all very fact based there was very little in terms of personal intimate you know details which mm-hmm. I was so hungry for and I kept trying to imagine well if she was on the road for three years you know where was her daughter how did her daughter feel about this and how do you become that successful without putting your family on the back burner at least for a while because we know that really successful entrepreneurs have to work 24-7 in order to get their business off the ground. I mean, to make that much money, you sacrifice something. And I and I, also the time period, it's not like you had Amtrak, per se, that fast. Yeah. It's not like you had the fast planes. You can go to such and such airport. Uh, you didn't have Uber. You know, yeah. we didn't have Internet, you know. Exactly. So this was a true one-on-one, you know, this was a true in-person endeavor. This was a physical thing, getting on the road, talking to people, getting out there. So she must have had to sort of, um, for lack of a better word, ignore her daughter and her family for a time yeah. Yeah. to mm-hmm. this 
And I just was always hungry to, to try to understand what the impact was on Alelia. And there is, there was some indication that they had some fraught, you know, aspect of their relationship. And Alelia was, you know, referred to by a circle of her friends as, you know, kind of spoiled and, you know, very uh, opinionated and stubborn in many ways. And I thought, you know, how, how did this newfound wealth affect her sense of self, affect her relationship to her community, to her mother? How did the time that her mother spent on the road impact her and impact their relationship? And that Madam C.J. Walker was an orphan, grew up without a mother herself. Mm-hmm. How did her ability to mother Alelia? So this book, this poetry book, which actually turned out, to do it in poetry, turned out to be the best um, medium, I think, because then I could really take a lot of creative license in terms of how I imagine their relationship and, and write it through her voice, through this beautiful, you know, these beautiful um, poetic, poetic formats, you know, like haikus and... and yes, the, you have different formats. It's not all the same. So it it's, it's definitely keeps your interest because, you know, one thing, you have the haiku, you have sonnets, you have lyrical, you have narrative, you have the speeches... Um, all types of things. The couplets, that was really cool. I, I thought that was great. Um, nursery rhymes. Um, and then, like I was mentioning earlier, there's an arrhythmic poem, um, and that's cool. There's a poem that has the mother, daughter, the words mother and daughter, and it's, I don't know how to explain it. Explain, I'm trying to explain it to somebody if they visually saw it. That, that style is called acrostic. Okay, so, that's the acrostic, okay. Acrostic poem means that you, you know, the, the first letter of a word, um, uh, sorry, you've got a word and the first letter, you write a sentence beginning with that letter. And then the next letter, you write a sentence and you write your poem that way. So that's an acrostic poem. And the entire book itself is an acrostic format because each chapter it deals with an issue that spells out mother and daughter. So money, orphan, travel, hair, mm-hmm. and Billions. That's mother. So it, it the the book kind of worked in its own ecosystem that way, um, which is the structure that unlocked it for me. You know, once I worked out that structure, it just all just flowed like gravy. <laughs> it's a lot of fun to write. Well, I think you have a really beautiful piece here, and it's completely. I would say. I would say it's almost completely different, but also it's the same because it's talking about the other person, the other character was a superstar. Madam C.J. Walker was a superstar of her time, and she was dealing with the paparazzi of the time. She was dealing with her relationship with her daughter. Um, Mm -hmm. She was dealing with relationships with um, her different husbands, you know. Um, So it's similar, you know. I mean, do you think that you would ever write a book that had a male main character? Do you see that? Or do you think it focused mostly on women? I think, um, you know, that's not the realm of possibility because I think, you know, with so much that's going on in the last couple of years with male identity and toxic masculinity and all of that, I do think men, you know, are having, they're facing their own challenges, you know, they're starting to have to become accountable to centuries of, you know, privileged behavior, particularly white men. And my husband is a white male. So, Mm -hmm. 
I'm not saying anything disparaging about white men. I love men. You know, I think they're fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, think, and, and in particular, I do think black men, if I did, if I were to ever write a, a story where the protagonist was a male, it would absolutely be a black male, um, probably a young black male, a boy or something, because I think that's where we begin to help you know, in terms of having a strong sense of self and of history and of heritage, you know, you, you, you mm-hmm. talk to the younger generations and you say, this is who, you, this is how you are. This is how it is. You're a beautiful person. Don't let anybody change that, you know? Um, but for for the time being, um, I'm all about women. That's it for me. Yeah. They are the Queens as far as I'm concerned, you know, really resilient. They're the backbone of, the black community and have been since, since, you know, time immemorial and particularly in American history, they raised the children, they cared for the families, they cleaned, they cooked, you know, they kept families together. They are Mm -hmm. backbone, you know? Yes, definitely, definitely. Fierce queens. (laughs) Fierce queens. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to be giving some copies of your book away so um, I'm I'm going to encourage people to follow me on social media. What are your social media names? Where can people find you um, on these different, you know, Facebook and um, Instagram and things of that nature? Well, Facebook under Roger Augustine um, is my name, and I'm mostly on Instagram. I've got um, God, I've got like three Instagram accounts. One is <laughs> is my name, Roger Augustine, but that's more you know personal family stuff. But my public ones are. The Right Space, um, and that is uh, uh, a, it's a, an Instagram account that, that deals with a podcast and web series that I had done a couple of years ago about creatives in their workspace. So it explores, you know, where people create. And then I have a new one that I just started, which is more about, um, I started it for this project, which is Piece of Theater. So if anyone wants to drop me a line or send me, you know, a, a comment or a like. It's Peace of Theater, and that's peace as in world peace. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's really yeah. cool. That's very yeah. cool. Okay, I like that. Well, um, again, thank you so much for not – the last time you were on, you woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning or stayed up until 4 o'clock. Um, yeah. This time it's morning there. Yeah. It's 10-something it's 10, it's 10 there, 10, 10 a.m., Um, so, um, uh, that's a little easier on you, right? (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Uh, one day maybe I'll be in Australia and we can do at the same time, you know, won't be such a time difference. (laughs) I would love that. Yes. Well, thank you again for coming on. I hope you have a great week and please stay safe. You know, um, the COVID, I I mean, I know it's a little better there, Mm -hmm. but it's not as bad as it is over here in the United States. I know that. Yeah, it is, and it's much better here, thankfully. But, yes, I will. And same to you. I hope you all, I pray for you and your family and all of you, and thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it, and I always love chatting with you. <laughs> thank you so much. All mm. right, I'll talk to you later then, okay? Okay, take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Again, I just got off the phone with Roger Augustin. And you can check her out on uh, Instagram mostly. She also has um, Facebook. And, but I'm going to be giving away some of her books. So you want to follow me to get the book um, for free. And I'll have a little contest uh, for you. So at Joy Keys on Twitter. Um, you can also check me out Saturday mornings with Joy Keys on Facebook. 
and Saturdays with, Saturdays with Joy Keys on Instagram. So please have a safe evening. Wash your hands. Wear your mask. Um, you know, six feet apart. All those things. And thank you for supporting the show. I'll see you this Saturday. I'll be doing a show on domestic violence. It's domestic domestic violence awareness month. And also, um, I'll be speaking with another author. Her name is Roseanne Brown. So come on Saturday and ask some questions. All right, talk to you later. To some, a baby's babbling doesn't mean much, but it does. Especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Learn more at autismspeaks.org. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council.